August should be a month of calm. It should be slow. It should be characterized by vacations and crickets and the sound of cicadas and maybe uh, the initial thoughts of heading back to school and things that we need to get ready for heading back to school. But as Dave said, as I prayed, the last several weeks, especially if you followed international or national news at all, have been anything but. I, I think brutal is a word that would more characterize the events of our nation and the world in the past several weeks from the incredibly difficult immigration issues that involve so many children to Ebola to the, 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 the rioting that's now going on in St. Louis, the cries for justice in the wake of that death, the death of Robin Williams, and the wars and rumors of war. Libya, Iraq, Syria, Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, Russia, and of course involving the U.S. as well. It's, it's just awful. It's awful. It's hard to open it up and to see it every day. It's awful, but for the people of God, and I suppose for all people, it's not surprising. Sin wrecked shalom. The Lord created a world that was characterized by harmony and peace, and sin has wrecked shalom. And it will continue to do so, says the Prince of Peace, until the end of time you'll have these things going on. And Israel is reminded of this, taught this lesson of these difficulties that are going to exist in this world when Amalek, with relatively no introduction as to why or who, comes to wage war against them. God's in that sense, simple lesson for Israel, the simple lesson for the people is that this enmity, this strife and conflict are going to continue. They're going to be a part of your life. It didn't end with you getting out of Egypt. You know, they, they could have thought, well, the greatest enemy that we could possibly imagine, Egypt, has now been defeated. We're safe. We're okay. And God says, no, I have some other things that I need to teach you, some other things you're going to need to experience because they're characteristic of the life of the people of God in this world. Now, if you recall, and we looked at this together a few weeks back, maybe a few months back now, when the people first came out of Egypt, God rerouted them. And, and here's the description of it. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Exodus 13, verse 17. God, for a time, protected his people from war. Remember, he's, he's training them. This is nursery school when he's training them. Now, a couple of months later, since that initial departure, the people of God are, in fact, confronted by the Amalekites because they're going to have to know how to respond in the face of a situation like this. The, the lessons and the way that I'm going to look at the lessons from this text today 
are kind of personified for us. We're going to look at them through Moses, through Joshua, and then through the Lord as well. We begin with Moses interceding, for that's the clear focus of this passage. I think you could put Moses, Joshua, the Lord in any order for this one because they're intertwined. But in any case, the intercession of Moses is clearly the focus that we have before us. The success of the Israelites in this battle against Amalek is directly related to the work of Moses on the hill. We know nothing of the battle itself. You know, if you went and you visited Gettysburg or Antietam or one of the battle sites somewhere around, one of the things you would want to know and one of the things that the guide would show you is where the positions were at various points in the battle. They'd show you how this bridge was taken and then it was retaken uh, and how the artillery was positioned here or there. We don't know anything about this battle. None of the details at all in terms of how Joshua fought, how many people were involved, how they were organized. We don't know one thing about this battle. What we know is that Moses was up on a hill. And he was up on a hill with the staff, his shepherd's staff, in his hand, as it has been throughout the book of Exodus. It is sacramentally, not just symbolically, but sacramentally representing for the people the power and the presence of God in their midst. And Moses is on that hill with his hands raised, with the staff presumably in his hand, and you know the story, it's clear enough. As those hands continue to be raised, Joshua and the Israelites prosper, prevail in the battle, and as those hands for reason of weariness, weakness, get lowered, then in fact Amalek and the Amalekites prosper and prevail in the battle. This man on the hill growing weak and weary as the day goes along is actually the key to this battle. Now, if you're an, Amalek, uh, if, if you're an Amalekite commander and you're looking at this situation, you're trying to figure out, how do I get Joshua? He's on the field here. If I get him, we'll be safe. Or where's the weak point on the field? Well, the reality is it's the guy up on the hill, the 83-year-old guy with a stick in his hand up on the hill who can't even hold his hands up anymore that's key to this battle that's going on. What is he doing? up there. Besides raising his hands, there's no description. We have no content. We, we don't, I'm going to assume, and I think it's a safe assumption that he was praying, but we don't even have that statement that he was praying. We have no content recorded about what he was thinking, what he was saying, what the interaction was between Moses, Aaron, and her at that time. And in the absence of the description, I think we are invited to look at the picture, to look at this scene that God has created. There's no verbiage going on here, so look at the scene because over and over again, this is exactly what the text is pointing us to. Look at the image, take in the view that is set before us. I, I can imagine, and, and I don't know how many men, well, obviously I just said that, right? We don't know how many men Joshua took with him. But you figure it could only be several thousand of a large group of Israelites. So presumably, a good portion of the Israelites were probably watching this take place. And certainly, if you were a 13-year-old boy, you can bet you were watching it take place. 
and your eyes were probably fixed on the tumult of war. For good reasons, for probably just bad reasons. We're attracted to those kind of things, right? You look at them. You want to see the strikes, the way things go. When I can imagine parents, grandparents, moms, dads, grandmothers, grandfathers kind of saying to the kids, hey, look, hey, look, it's not just about Joshua sitting there fighting, sorry, not sitting there, but fighting the Amalekites. Look up on the hill, because there's Moses. And as Moses is up on that hill with the staff in his hand, it looks like Joshua is prevailing. And they've got this image that is flooding their, their view in front of them of the weak man on the hill with his hands outstretched and, and the grandparents and the parents saying to their kid, he's our leader. He's the one. That guy on the hill is the one who speaks to God for us. He's the one who's led us out here. He's the one who's leading us in worship. It is the picture of intercession, a mediator, a go-between, between man and God. Between the people and God, Moses functions in this role. He is the great, the great prophet of Israel, on the hill with his hands outstretched for the people of God. And supporting him on the one side is Aaron, the one who in a few chapters in Exodus will become the great high priest of Israel. And on the other side is her. We've got no introduction to her either in this passage. Her's father is Caleb. He is the grandfather of Bezalel, who will be important later in Exodus in terms of the design of the tabernacle, gifted by God for the design of the tabernacle. And listen, he's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the tribe of Judah. Look at Moses interceding. That's what you're invited to see in this passage. Meanwhile, Joshua's fighting. Moses interceding, Joshua fighting with also no introduction. No introduction to the Amalekites, no introduction to her, no introduction to who Joshua is. Anybody who would have been reading this would have known those things. But in any case, here we are. Joshua's fighting. He comes onto the scene appointed by Moses to direct the troops, to direct the battle, to choose the right men to get in battle. Here's a, a quote from John Hall, who's a Puritan, writing on this. He says, in vain shall Moses be upon the hill if Joshua be not in the valley. Prayer without means is a mockery of God. That's John Hall. Now, I'm not sure I would go exactly that far in saying those things, but it's a good, it's a good image Essential to the victory is obviously Moses on the hill. That's what we're being drawn to. And Joshua's got to be in the valley actually doing the battling. And this is an important moment for Israel. Hitherto, up to this point, Israel hasn't needed to fight. They haven't fought for 400 plus years. And they didn't need to fight the Egyptians. Right? You look at all the things that God did for them at that time. None of them involved the Israelites taking up swords against the Egyptians. God did it all. Now, they had to do things. 
They had to collect the manna along the way. They had to walk when God said walk. They had to have the Passover. They had to do things, but they didn't have to fight. God was the one who did it all. God delivered them out of the greatest power on earth without them having to use a sword to do it. If you think about this, think about it as well in relationship to the people entering through Joshua, the land of Canaan. They cross over the river, the Jordan, and what did they have to do to take Jericho? Well, they didn't have to fight. They will have to fight. Israel has to fight here. They will have to fight once they get in the land. But what is being said here by God in their not fighting is get it straight. I am the Lord, your deliverer. I save you. I take you out of oppression. I am the one who does it, and you don't do it. I do it. If you want to, and this is not a stretch at all, you put this right in terms of the Lord is the one who justifies. The Lord is the one who saves his people. Now, saved people, delivered people, ransomed people, purchased people, now walk with me. Now, fight with me, fight alongside of me. Put it in New Testament terms, now work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. I've done it. I've set you free. I've delivered you. Now, now engage. You have eagle's wings, eagle's wings that I have given to you. Now soar. And I'm not just trying to be poetic there. That's Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. The Lord gives the woman and the child in the wilderness eagle's wings. Exodus chapter 19, two chapters from where we are right now. I delivered you on eagle's wings. Kids, if you're wondering where Tolkien got that idea, this is where he got the idea of the eagles always swooping in right at the point when it seems like nothing else will deliver. The eagles deliver. I gave you eagles' wings, soar. It's the same lesson that we saw with the manna. The manna is an overwhelming provision of God's grace in response to grumbling. That's the only thing it's in response to. I'm going to make it rain bread from heaven. And with the manna, with the manna, with the provision of the grace was God's expectation that the people would go and gather it according to the prescriptions that God had laid out for the gathering of manna. Don't take too much. Don't store it. And take twice as much on Fridays when you go out to pick it up. It's the same lesson that we have with our children as well. God, working through you, gave life to your children. You give them everything, every single thing that they need, all of the food, all of the water, everything, all the clothing that they need, the shelter that they need, the love that they need. You give them everything with hopes that, with expectations that, they get hold of those things. And they recognize that out of this bounty that they have been given comes this joyful responsibility to give to others to walk in a good way. Get in the fight, Israel. To this point, I've done it for you. 
Now, engage. Paul shows the spiritual relevance of this, and I'm not going to turn to it because obviously it could be three sermons or more in and of itself. But Ephesians chapter 6, he shows the relevance of this by talking about the spiritual armor, how we're going to, to put it on, how God has provided spiritual weapons for his people with the call that the people, that we stand firm, stand firm and fight with those spiritual weapons. Joshua is learning critical lessons here. He had critical lessons that he needed to learn in warfare. In Psalm 18, it's David praises God saying this, for you have equipped me with strength for battle. You have trained my hands for war. David gives thanks for that. Joshua could say the same thing as he prevailed by the power of the sword. God, thank you that you have trained my hands for war, that you've equipped me for battle. Moses' intercession, Joshua, Moses interceded, Joshua fought, and finally, Yahweh delivered. God says to Moses, write it down, write it down, and tell it to Joshua. Tell it right in his ear. Tell him what I've done. Tell him about this victory, because Joshua is going to need to hear it more than anybody else. He has got battles that he is going to face in the future, and Joshua must be reminded that as well as he fought in this battle, I gave the victory. It was from me. Your hands went up, he prospered. Your hands went down, he faltered. Write it down and keep telling it to Joshua. He needs to know. He needs to know, the Lord is my banner. That phrase comes in at verse 15, and, and you kind of wonder the context of it there. The, the banner is, as it would sound, something like a flag, a battle flag that is flown, a rallying point. And, and perhaps the best suggestion is that it seems to perhaps reflect the image of Moses on the hill with the staff in his hand, a banner-like image. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is the one who is over me in this battle. Joshua needs to know that I'll be with him so that he can be strong and courageous in the battles that he's going to face. He needs to know this, for the battle belongs to the Lord. And that gets at verse 16. A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. A hand upon the throne of the Lord, just a, a, a kind of a parenthesis here for just a moment. That's a really hard phrase to translate. It's either a hand upon the throne or a hand upon the banner. The hand upon the throne seems to be better, and it's hard to say with whom this is, in, with whom this is in reference, to whom, excuse me. Uh, meaning it could be referencing the Amalekites, a hand upon the throne of the Lord in terms of trying to usurp, trying to take the position, or it could be with reference to Moses and reaching out to the Lord, a hand upon the throne looking for help. Could go either way. Bottom line is there's an intercession, there's a work, there's a connection either in rebellion or in looking for support between earth and heaven. 
But the thing that Joshua in particular needs to know is God's going to destroy the Amalekites, but the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Not just Joshua, not just the Israelites. The Lord will have the war with Amalek, and it will happen in one generation, and then the next generation, and the next generation. And when it's not the Amalekites, it'll be somebody else. And that brings us back to where we began today with enmity, with conflict, with struggles, with international warfare. They will exist from generation to generation, and they will not stop. We don't like that. We can pray for peace, but they will not stop. It's true for Moses. It's true for Joshua. It's true for David. It's true for Daniel. It's true for Jesus and us as well. And a passage like this begins to shape for us our response to the kind of situations that we have seen over the past month in the nation and in the world. Now, I have to be clear here. I have to give you a couple of non-applications of this passage. So hear these first of all. First of all, no current nation on this earth has the divine imprimatur that belonged to ancient Israel. No current nation on this earth. None since the time of Jesus, none to come have this divine imprimatur that belonged to them. The U.S. does not have it. Russia does not have it. And Israel does not have it. This was unique to the people of God at this particular time. No one else, no other nation can claim that they have divine right to execute the will of God on his behalf. Does God use the nations? Absolutely. Does he use the nations for the accomplishment of his purposes? Absolutely he does. Does he rule over them? Absolutely. But there is not a single instrument in the hand of God that claims or can claim we are the people of God as a nation. This passage does not give Russia, the U.S., or Israel a blueprint in how to respond to international crisis situations. It doesn't tell Israel how they should respond to Gaza or the U.S. how we should respond to the Islamic State. There are, to be sure, general principles that are contained within the Word of God that were we, in fact, the governors of the land, the presidents of the land, could look to and gather some general guidance about what we should and shouldn't do. But it is without the divine imprimatur that belonged uniquely to this constituted people of God. Secondly, the church, as the church, does not use the same sword that Joshua used. Jesus said to Peter, put it away. Put it away. Sheathe that sword. It doesn't belong to us. It does belong to the state, not a state, the state in general, but it does not belong to the people of God. And though this passage finally gives us the ultimate assurance that God is victor, that Christ is victor, it certainly does not guarantee us victory in any one of the individual situations which we face 
as people day after day. This passage does not say to you, surely God will raise up a Joshua, come lop off the head of your awful boss and replace him with someone new and better. It doesn't. Ultimate victory, yes. Help, yes. But not that every situation will be made easy and we just need to read the rest of Scripture quickly and you would find that to be the case. We have a sword. Let's make it positive. We have a sword. It is the Word of God. We teach it. We preach it. We proclaim it. We live it. We read it. We study it. We have a sword. We battle with it. We seek to put to death in the first place sin in our lives, sin in our own midst, and we seek with the sword, by the sword, to live faithfully and to do good in whatever culture in which the Lord has placed us. And the passage, and I'm just going to say this very briefly this morning, the passage shows that we need each other. We need each other in the various roles that God has assigned to us. We need the people who were fighting in the actual war itself. We need somebody like Joshua to serve as a commander on the battlefield. And we need Moses interceding for the people up on top of the hill, and we need people to support him like Aaron and her. We need each other in the various roles that God has given to us. Another thing we can say positively about a passage like this is we need prayer, we need intercession. We need it meaningfully, firmly, and constantly for one another. We should be interceding for the saints. And this is where Ephesians 6 goes, and I will say this, right after the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, it says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. You want to wield it well. You want to engage in the battle. Pray. Intercede for the saints. I've told of this woman before, Peggy Vermont. Peggy Vermont was a saint. She has passed along to glory now. And I know that when we were in Ukraine, she prayed for us every day. And when she died, we were still in Ukraine, and I thought, who prays now? Who takes up that spot that Peggy had on the hill, which for her was just in her room, in her small apartment, praying? But more than these things, and these are all good applications. You want to walk away today and work on any of those things that I've just mentioned, your ability to handle the Word of God, your ability to appreciate the body of Christ and its various giftings, your call to intercede for others, great. Take it and apply from this passage as well. But more than those, more than those, what we need in battle, in ours, the Israelites and theirs, is the assurance that the weak one on the hill is interceding for us. As we look at these hills, and hills have been and will be already important in the book of Exodus. The burning bush was on a hill, Sinai. It's where God met him. And so we, we see this hill of just one man, just Moses, interacting with the burning bush on the hill. And now we're on another hill. We don't know exactly which hill this is, uh, but on another hill. And we see Moses interceding for the people of God. And in two chapters, we'll be back on Sinai. 
and Moses will be there with the 70 elders and all of the people gathered around the foot of Sinai. We see Moses, but we see more as Christians when we look at this, when you look to the hills, because you see another hill, and as you're looking at these hills, one after another, the next one that you come to is a hill we're on as a cross, a forsaken hill, a hill that looks like nothing. It looks irrelevant to the battle. The cross in Jerusalem, what has it to do with F-18s? What has it to do with IS, or with Ukraine and with Russia? And you see, the man who was on the cross, where he battled and he made intercession for us. That hill seems insignificant. It's not the hill you would target if you were one of the Amalekite commanders. And yet, on that hill depends everything. And on that cross, with that man stretched out, depends everything. But Christians, we don't even stop at that hill. Because in our view, is one more hill. And the one more hill that you go up is the heavenly Mount Zion. And there, at the heavenly Mount Zion, is the Savior who died here in intercession for you now, not with a hand on the throne, but seated on the throne. Seated at the right hand of his Father, up on the throne, and you know what he's doing there. He's interceding for you. He's interceding for us. Your mediator, your brother, stands before the God who is holy, 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 sits before the God who is holy. Your mediator, your brother, ever lives to make intercession for you. That is what Romans 8 is confirming for you. The Spirit intercedes for us with sighs and groanings too deep for words. Why? Because the Father, through the Son, has poured out the Spirit, and the Son makes intercession for us in that place, and nothing, nothing can stop His intercession for you. I.S., the Islamic State, can come right here and can lop off your head with a sword, and nothing separates you from the love of the one who is on the hill, who has your name on his lips, speaking it to his father. Would you like to know what he says there? You can know. We don't have recorded what Moses said. We have recorded how Jesus intercedes. And what he says to this father is, Father, I love them. I love them. I, I love those saints at Christ the King. I love, and here put your name, I love that person. I love that family. I love those children. I love them, Father. You gave them to me, and I've protected them. I've given them your word. Your word is truth, Father. Keep them secure, and keep them secure because you've kept me secure. Now keep them secure. Give them the love that you have for me that I have for you. I want them to be part of that love that we have for each other. 
Lord, hear their prayers. Lord, forgive them of their sins. My blood covers their sin. That's what Jesus is saying about you right now. Lord, make them holy. Sanctify them in truth. Lord, the glory that I had before the foundation of the world, Lord, what I would like for Jen and for Justin and for Charlotte, what I would like is for them to share that glory. That's what I want. I don't want to hoard glory to myself. I want them to have that glory as well. Father, I love them. John 17. Jesus was on a mountain, the Mount of Olives. And that's what he prayed for you. And you can bet, you can bet your bottom dollar that the Lord who prayed that for you while he was on earth ever lives to make intercession for you, and that's what it sounds like. That's on the lips of your Savior right now before God in heaven with your name put right in that place. As a result of the cross on which the God-man Jesus was stretched out and cursed on that hill, his intercessory love for you, his intercession for you is secured. The cross secured it. Yea, more than the cross, the resurrection secured it. Nothing will make him stop. He will never grow tired. He brought others to the hill to support him in prayer. His disciples, pray with me. Support my outstretched hands. They fell asleep. The risen, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ will never, ever get tired of interceding for us. And so before, before, before a call to battle, before a call for us to link arms with one another in battle, before a call for us to pray to one another, we are invited to look up at a hill and see not just Moses, and see not just a cross, but to see the Lord Jesus sitting on the throne his pierced hands will never stop interceding for you. Let's pray.